Well, we are continuing in our sermon series, like Michael said, uh, on unsung heroes. And tonight we're going to be talking about Gideon. And I guess I have to start off with an apology slash, I don't know what you want to call it, but Gideon is one of my favorite characters from the book of Judges, but he's not exactly unsung. Uh, as He's an unlikely choice for this series, okay? He, as one of my, my young, very, uh, very handsome colleagues pointed out last week, uh, you know, oh yeah, if you've ever opened a uh, dresser drawer in a hotel, you've seen the name of Gideon. I'm like, that's, that's great, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for that. That's very edifying to me. All right, so he's not totally unsung, all right? But, y- you know, he's, he's known. Parts of his story are well known. We know some things about him. Uh, he is a hero of flannel boards in children's classrooms across this great land of ours, okay? We know the name of Gideon. We know some of the things that he's done. But if you look at the Bible, he's not actually mentioned outside of the book of Judges, except one time, and that's in passing, in a list of people that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews uh, doesn't have time to talk about. So if he doesn't have time to talk about him tonight, we will make time to talk about him just a little bit. So not maybe unsung, but he's not oversung. So if you will open up your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 6, or I should say your your Bible apps is probably much more prevalent in this room, totally fine. I'm going to say a very quick opening prayer. Uh, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit now to move mightily, that you would keep me from error, that you would be glorified above all in our study tonight. Give us all attentive ears and receptive hearts filled with your spirit. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So a little bit of background, a little bit of historical context so we know what we're wading into, especially if you guys are not, or if there's any of you out there who are not super deep into the Bible and into the book of Judges just yet. The book of Judges covers some 350 years, uh, circa 1398 BC to 1043 BC to be exact. It was likely written by the prophet Samuel, uh, who we know as the guy that would anoint the first two kings of Israel, and he's providing us a history of what came before the time of the kings. The time of the judges and the context for everything that we read, not just in tonight's story, but everything else in the book at large, can be summed up by the last verse of the book, which is Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We can recognize this time as a time that's very, very similar to our own, can we not? Of all the sections of Old Testament history, modern America can probably identify best with the time of the judges. It was a time of cultural relativism, of syncretism, which is just a fancy word that says Yahweh, the God of the Bible, was placed on the shelf alongside other gods of the region and other gods of the time. So he was not held in preeminence. He was not held as the God. He was, well, we have a thing to Yahweh, and then we have Baal worship, and we have Asherah worship, and and we do the exact same thing today, right? We don't necessarily openly proclaim for Baal and Asherah, but we have other things. We have Buddha. We have Muhammad, perhaps. Self is a big one. All manner of nameless spiritual forces, healing crystals, magic candles, CrossFit, the keto diet, veganism. I'm not hating on CrossFit, keto, or veganism, FYI. Nobody throw rocks at me, but... For the record, I think we all know people for whom health, fitness, 
and all the like have become their God. Okay, if that's not us, we know at least two or three people for whom that can be said as true. And that's, that's idolatry, guys. If, that is, if you're placing anything above God, that is idolatry, every bit as much as the child sacrifice contained in Baal worship. Uh, I've got a great quote that I love uh, from Tim Keller on this. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. So now we're going to come to Judges 6, where the cycle of the book of Judges is going to begin again. The cycle of Judges goes like this, all right? People sin. God is going to raise up an enemy to chastise and correct the people. People are going to cry out for help. God is going to raise a deliverer. The problem is going to get solved. And then the people are going to fall back into sin, and the cycle is going to repeat. In this iteration of the cycle, God has brought a foreign invader, the Midianites, into the land of Israel. And the Midianites are going to come in like a cloud of locusts. They're going to be numerous. They're going to be problematic, and they're going to be up in everybody's business, okay? Spoiler alert for the end of the story. Tonight, we are going to see that even when God's people fail, they're not going to be able to out God's grace. If you'll look with me, Judges 6, starting in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, if the story had ended here, well, it'd be a very short book of the Bible, okay? But if the story had ended here, nobody can actually complain. God told his people to obey, and they'd be blessed. He told them to obey or face the consequences, and they chose disobedience. Leaving the people of God alone in the consequences of their sin would be justice, which brings us to our first point on our outline. Even when we fail, it's the prerogative of God to save the undeserving. The prerogative of God. Prerogative is just a word that means because God is God, he can do whatever he wants. And I have to confess, I was nervous when picking this as, a, uh, as an outline point. Uh, fun fact about me, if I hear the word prerogative, I get Bobby Brown's 1988 classic, My Prerogative, stuck in my head. If that's any of you, I am so sorry. Uh, enjoy Bobby Brown for the rest of the night. God is totally free, and in his love for his unfaithful people, he hears their pleas and he raises up a deliverer. But what kind of deliverer is he going to raise up? Well, obviously, he's going to pick the bravest warrior situated in the most militarily strong portion of Israel, or not. We're going to look at verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, which is a tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, 
The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present to set before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon begins his interaction with the angel of the Lord a little inauspiciously. Now we're going to gloss over the significance of the angel of the Lord uh, here because it's just a whole long thing. Just know that this is God speaking face to face with Gideon. All right? God, excuse me, Gideon is in hiding right now. He's doing difficult farm work for very low return on his investment. This is not how you're supposed to, you know, deal with wheat. I know because Google said so. Okay, this is not how that works. And he begins this interaction face-to-face with God Almighty, asking a very modern American question. If God is so good, why are bad things happening to us? We're decent people. We're his covenant people. Why would he forsake us? Never mind the fact that it's the Israelites who broke the covenant, not God. God's never broken a promise in his existence. He has not before. He never will. This is all on Israel. Uh, Got a quote here I don't have a slide for from uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Isn't it amazing that God gives breath to a man who is going to blaspheme him all day? That would hit me really good. I'd... I just think it's a great quote. I actually know nothing about Leonard Ravenhill, but man, that, that'll preach. Uh, that's called common grace, and that's your free theology term for the evening. You're welcome. Okay. Now, Gideon is totally oblivious to his and Israel's sin and how much they deserve the pot that they find themselves in. Gideon responds also eerily similar to Moses in his encounter with the burning bush, which is a fascinating discussion also for a different day. So Gideon is going to start to grasp the seriousness of this encounter, and he's going to go and prepare a sacrifice. And when he offers the sacrifice, God burns it up with fire, disappears from sight, and Gideon realizes he may have screwed up a little bit. All right? Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So Gideon has just had an encounter with the living God, and his life is forever altered. Knowing that he cannot see a just and holy God and live, he understandably worships Yahweh, possibly for the very first time in his life. This is his conversion moment, if you will. Judges uh, 6.25, that night the Lord said to him, 
Okay, so he's not standing there anymore. He is now speaking to him. Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Okay, so Gideon has seen God. He's been called by God. He's been saved by God and he is ready to be used by God. Gideon has received commands. And he obeys right away, probably to avoid, well, not probably, it's just to avoid trouble with the neighbors, okay? So it's like, on the one hand, man, you were quick. I like that you were quick. On the other, this is still, he's, he's growing, okay? This is a little bit of faith. This isn't all the faith just yet. And the next day, when the angry villagers show up to kill him, where is Gideon? Well, he's basically hiding in the equivalent of his father's basement, Okay? Gideon's dad, in fact, has to come out and kick the angry mob off of his lawn, all right? Does God strike down Gideon in this moment for his fear? Does God rebuke Gideon for letting his dad take care of his problem? He was commissioned by Almighty God to take care of this invading army, and he's scared of a few villagers? But this is going to bring us to our second point on our outline, the patience of God. The patience of God. Even when we fail, even when we come up short, even when we are cowardly, when we should be brave, God is patient with his people. All right, so Gideon's dad steps up, kicks the neighbors off the lawn. Gideon is then clothed with the spirit of the Lord and rounds up the locals. And in this case, he's very likely rounding up at least a few of the people just a few verses earlier that were on his lawn protesting Baal worship, being stopped and ready to kill him, okay? Now he's got this army of people. He's going to go out and fight the Midianites. But before he can go into battle, he's not, he's not quite there yet, right? Okay, he's just, he doesn't quite have the faith enough to move with the army that has come. So he says, he's, he's just got to put a couple tests before God. All right, needs a little bit more proof. So Judges 6, 36 to 40, which is the episode known as Sign of the Fleece, where Gideon asked God on two successive nights to show him a sign. And it's involving a supernaturally wet fleece one night and a supernaturally dry fleece the second. This is one of those sections that we see on flannel boards in the kids' classrooms all the time, right? It's like, okay, here's the Gideon guy, and then there's a little a fleece thing. We assume it's a bit of wool or whatever. No, look, it's water, it's wet. And then, oh, there's no water, it's dry. Okay, an interesting detail of this story that I only picked up in prepping for this lesson, and I must have, I don't know how many times I've come across this, the setting for this story is on the threshing floor, which is where Gideon should have been in the very beginning of this episode. So we see that Gideon, at the beginning, before God has encountered him, is too afraid to do the work on the threshing floor that would have made sense to do and now he has an uprising. He has a military force getting ready to kick these invaders out. And, and he's not scared to be on the threshing floor. All right? This is great. God's, excuse me, Gideon's confidence is growing along with his faith in God. It's not perfect, right? He's seeking a sign, but it's, he's growing. And God graciously and without rebuke goes along with Gideon's silly test with the fleece not once but twice. 
Our God is patient with his people. Now, Gideon's fears put to rest. We're going to get to the action. Turn with me to chapter 7. Then Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So Gideon is beginning with about 30,000 men. We know that because a little bit later we see how many men he has to whittle away. We do a little bit of subtraction. It's like basically the amount of math that I'm allowed to do. It works out. So we start with about 30,000 men, but God knows the hearts of his people. And so God has Gideon send home everyone who wants to go home, and that gets rid of a lot. And then everyone who kneels down to drink gets sent home, and God whittles down Gideon's army of 30,000 men to 300 in order to display our third point on your outline, the power of God. The power of God. Even when we fail, even when we don't deserve it, God has the power to deliver. Against impossible odds, God has the power to deliver. The ridiculous military conquests that follow with these 300 dudes are God's victories. It is very clear in no uncertain terms, God is going to win the day. God's going to cause the Midianite army to destroy themselves. And he has the remnant of that army chased across the land by Gideon and his 300 men. Along the way, they're going to have some interactions with their own countrymen countrymen that we're going to gloss over for now. But God supernaturally destroys the Midianite army, and Gideon gets to go along for the ride, okay? Chapters 7 and 8 frequently play like action movies. I suggest if you have anything more than like a 20-minute car ride to get home, have somebody read them in the car ride home. Discuss. It's good reading. Book of Judges is good reading. It's very entertaining. Uh, Gideon gets to deliver some cool snappy lines and starts to look a bit like a Jason Bourne, John Wick character, okay? But we never lose sight that the battle belongs to the Lord. God was, God is, God will always be able to deliver his people. Amen? I have no cool segue, so we're just going to look at point number four, the provision of God. The provision of God of God. When you look closely at this story from start to finish, you're going to notice an interesting detail. As Tim, Pastor Tim, excuse me, alluded to earlier, God starts off with a huge encounter with a cowardly idolater, all right? But as Gideon's faith grows, Gideon requires less and less and less and less from God in order to obey him. And in order to follow him, God provides Gideon with exactly what he needs, when he needs it, in order to follow and obey. God will deliberately stack the odds against his people so that they will know their deliverance comes from him. Because there's nothing that we need to know more than God is in charge. Also note, God did not ask Gideon to clean his life up before he could be used, okay? 
God called a cowardly idolater to serve him, and he didn't give him a list of behaviors he needed to do before he started to serve him. If God had waited on Gideon to make himself perfect before he could be used, this story could not have happened. God loves to use unlikely people to accomplish impossible tasks. If you are out there and you don't think you're holy enough to serve your church in some way, or if you think you need a degree in theology to serve in the kids' ministry, to help with parking, to be a greeter, to help prepare water, coffee, whatever, coming in here, I want to gently encourage you. I want to say that you're missing a huge opportunity for God to bless you through serving your church and serving alongside your family here. If you are someone who thinks that they are too sinful for God to save, just know that God only saves sinners. It's just so you know, he has no interest in the perfect ones of you out there. I'd like to meet you, but I mean, God has no no need to save you. And if God will do what he did through Gideon, you have no idea what he has in store for you. Even when we fail, God will provide us with what we need. So we're going to move to the end of the story here. Uh, Victory. The people are safe. Midian is defeated. God is good. The people are psyched about it, okay? And they are all very, very big fans of Gideon. Uh, We're going to jump to chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. (laughs) Yes, that will preach. Okay, that is solid. This, these two sentences, this more than anything else Gideon does in the whole book is what makes Gideon a hero worthy of remembrance. All right, he is offered basically to become the king of Israel. These people are saying, look, we will give you power, we'll give you wealth, we'll give you respect, we'll give you everything. And Gideon says, no, to God be the glory. He turns people back to the God who rightly deserves all of that praise that they were so willing to give to him. This is a person who knows God and trusts what God says. And I'm sure the end of the story is just super smooth, but we'll just keep on reading anyway. Uh, Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Well, that's disappointing. Even if you don't know what an ephod is, generally speaking, the phrase hoard after it is not good. It's worth noting all right, that Gideon very well may have had good intentions. All right? An ephod was a special garment worn by the priests, 
And if we give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, this could have been an act of devotion to Yahweh. But it was still a mistake. This was not something God asked for. All right? Regardless, the people dropped the ball, Gideon dropped the ball, and they all dropped the God who saved them in order to lust after a really nice golden vest. We're going to keep reading. Verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. In the end, the people return to their sin, and the cycle repeats. And this may have at least some of you asking a pretty basic question. Why? Why did God even bother with these people? Would any of us have bothered with them at this point? Would we have just washed our hands and said, you know what, I, I did my best, peace out, I'm done. This is going to bring us to our last point on our outline, the purposes of God, the purposes of God. Friends, God does not arbitrarily meddle in history. God is not capricious. God loves his people with a love and a mercy that we cannot begin to comprehend. God made promises beginning way back in the Garden of Eden, promises that although man had sinned and ruined his beautiful creation, he would deliver us from those sins and restore this fallen world to what it should have been. God makes promises later to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the prophets, that he will send a final deliverer. The book of Judges is just one small chapter out of the entire story of redemption that is always looking forward to that once and for all final deliverance in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God kept the people of Israel from destroying themselves in sin so that he could bring Christ through the seed of Abraham and save not just the sinful Jews, but also the sinful sinners from every nation, from this room, through the perfect sinless life of Jesus, because obviously we couldn't live it. And as he died the brutal death that our sins deserved, our sinful nature was killed with him if we will but put our faith in him. After three days, he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father to present his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. God was not about to let anything prevent him from keeping his promises and saving his people, even if his people didn't want anything to do with him. Even when we fail, just as Israel did, God's purpose is sure. We cannot out God's grace. If anyone could have, the Israelites in the time of the judges would have. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah sums it up really well. Uh, Jeremiah 33, 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Jeremiah is just telling a later generation of Israelites that nothing is going to stop God's promises from coming true. God is saying, if you could stop the sun from rising, the earth from spinning, then he will break his promise to bring forth the Messiah. So no matter how bad Israel messed up, 
God was never going to let their failure wreck his plan of salvation. And not even our failures can stop our God. Church history is littered with amazing men and women who screwed up. Jonathan Edwards, one of the brightest minds of the 18th century, whose writings influence Christians of every generation since and probably will for 500 years if we're still around, was also a slave owner. Martin Luther King Jr. was so powerfully used for good in this country. I don't have to say a word about what he did. You all know. And he was a serial philanderer. Martin Luther, the OG Protestant, was possibly the most important figure in Christian history outside of the first century. And in his later years, possibly driven crazy by some medical things that plagued him his whole life, he ended up writing some anti-Semitic diatribes that not only contradicted his own earlier writings, but obviously directly contradicted the Bible. And this stuff got picked up as propaganda by the Nazis. If you're here tonight and you have been saved by putting your faith in the life, death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. The God whose prerogative it was to save Gideon and the Israelites is the same God who saved you. He is patient with his people. He has the power to keep you safe with him. If you are here tonight and you're suffering, you're going through a trial, a tough time, or if you're here and you have a heart heavy with sin that you have not given up to God, some idolatry, some some good thing that's been made into an ultimate thing, some sexual sin that you think you can't surrender, you just can't give it up. Friends, God is faithful. Call on him like Israel did in their time of trouble, and he will hear you. If you are his, he will provide you with what you need. And that does not mean that he's going to bring us health, wealth, prosperity, or remove all temptation. God did not take away Israel's innate desire to serve idols. He does promise that he will stand firm through your trial. God does not promise to deliver us from tough circumstances. He did for the Israelites, but he does not promise that to everyone at all times. But he does promise that he will never leave or forsake us. As Paul says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Amen. For those of you who do not yet know Christ Jesus as Lord, who have not traded your sins for his righteousness, God may do giant, amazing things that the whole world will talk about through you. He may not. But know that his plans for you are never based on your ability to earn his favor. Put your trust in Christ alone it is Christ alone that saves. It is Christ alone that keeps you. Don't presume to tell God that he does not have the prerogative to save. Don't presume to tell God that your sins are bigger than his grace. Don't presume to tell God that he lacks the power or the patience to forgive you. And don't presume to tell God that he can't give you enough faith to believe. Don't presume to tell God what his purpose is. If you're here tonight and you want to know more about how you can know God's purpose to deliver you from your sin through Jesus Christ, or if there's something going on in your life and you need prayer, our prayer partners are going to be standing off to the left after uh, the next song and would love to pray with you. I'm going to close this in prayer if you'll all bow with me.
Almighty God, Heavenly Father, gracious Lord, all-powerful Redeemer, thank you for all that you are, all that you've done. We thank you that you did not abandon your people to their sin despite their failures. We thank you that you who begin a good work in your people in this room will see it through to the end. Give us the faith and courage to serve you better, to love you better, and to seek your glory in all that we do. And in all these things we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.